Well, certainly God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. We came here actually for a wedding of my wife's sister, and uh, uh, we leave on this day after tomorrow for Medellin, Colombia, and trying to get all ready for all these different things. Our son, uh, who's 43, and uh, he's getting married, and so it's a pretty amazing moment for all of us with our our other son arriving with all his children from Mexico City, and, and then there's others from uh, our daughter with her Peruvian medical doctor, uh, Tommy, uh, arriving from Mesa, Arizona, with their four children also, and so kind of the Peruvian side, the Mexican side with the Colombian side, and, and uh, we'll be able to gather together, and there's people coming from different Latin American countries, and uh, uh, because of Poema's connections with 18 different Spanish-speaking countries. So it is a wonderful time for us, but uh, God's way with uh, having us with this opportunity to be with you today. We were planning on stopping here on our way on back to the Valley of the Sun, but uh, uh, your pastor uh, graciously asked us to bring something from God's Word. So yesterday, I started out in the morning and read through the whole book of the revelation of Jesus Christ because I thought right away we have to speak concerning our great urgency that I believe my brother Kurt has that same feel that we need to have an urgency about us of taking the gospel to the nations, to our families, and to the ends of the earth. And sometimes I feel like we are great at brainstorming about our principles and and really talking, and especially when pastors gather, they can give you all the great ideas, but action. And so I pray that God will give us something of that great need as we work together in seeing our churches work together to send the gospel to the very ends of the earth and uh, see something that would really take place. Uh, I, as soon as he mentioned that, as we drove away a little bit later, I was even thinking then of a I don't know if you're familiar with William Chalmers Burns. He was a missionary to China, um, used in revival actually there in Scotland and uh, in Robert Murray McShane's church there, and he went to China. Uh, But as a young laddie, lad, he was uh, for the first time in Glasgow in Scotland. And as uh, one from the country, he came into the big city of Glasgow and his parents suddenly found they couldn't locate him, and they began to look around, and uh, uh, there finally they found him in an alley, there against the wall, weeping. And I always remember the story as it was told by a Scotsman to me, and he said, as his father said, what's wrong? And he said, the third of these Christless souls breaks me heart. And so it'd be my prayer today that the thud of priceless souls around us to those who are at the ends of the earth would break our hearts. We need something of a greater urgency about us if we're really going to have action in our own day. There is the need for a passion about taking the gospel to our families and to others and the nations of the world. So we come to this passage as I would have my prayer Uh, Certainly, uh, thank you, dear brother, for reading this passage.
from Revelation chapter 19. And it's really a passage that does speak of this consummation moment of all history. The book of Revelation is, is given to us for help, for hope. It's not a book that's really given to us for what it's been used by so many Christians as you believe it, you interpret these pictures, these uh, uh, colorful, uh, almost we could call them drawings of pictures of things. And Christians have taken this book to argue with each other and fight with each other. And instead of it being a great book of encouragement and joy, it's become, what is your position on this? And what is yours? And mine is this. And you understand the number 666. And and if you understand it this way, we don't agree with you. In fact, we won't shake hands almost. And you just wonder, how did we miss this? That it opens up that this book is to be the book that blesses God's people with these great and wonderful pictures of who God is, and especially the revelation of Jesus Christ and all of his beauty and glory and power and majesty. It's our book we need today. If we kind of go over a little bit of where we are, it was mentioned, I think, just that as we were meeting together this morning, what is going on all around us is is chaos on steroids. I mean, I can't remember what, what fires that are going on, burnings up north, all the way into Europe and above the North Pole. Burning the pandemic. You want to have something that makes Christians argue with each other? All the different arguments. Why we shouldn't do this and why we shouldn't do that. Why we should do this and why we shouldn't. There's divisions among Christians. And then we have all of these elements that are going on that are really uh, not just about end times, but uh, just how people interpret one thing or another. There's almost a chaos among us. So when we come to this passage, I want us to grab hold of certain things that will encourage us to action. So as we come to this, notice verse 11, it speaks of something that's for help and hope in our times. And I believe it's important as we come to this. It says, I saw heaven standing open. So there's something to see these visions that God has given to us right from the start. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ in all these visions, and it takes us all the way to the end time, and then it begins again, even with the birth of Christ in the book, and it takes us all the way to the end time, and then we come to this almost like a consummation of the end of time. There's hallelujahs. God's great blessing has come. Yes, all that we've been praying for, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the moment has come. As we come to this passage with verse 11, if you would see the importance of this, and then we'll pick up three things as we look at this passage, and I'm sure there's much more that some of you could pick up from the passage, but I want you to note down three things. The first is, the rider on the white horse comes with judgment. The rider on the white horse comes with vengeance. 
And I would want you to see how important it is to know all the injustices that we can see around the world. We think of the, the picture that we see in different parts of the world, Afghanistan, to see those pictures of people that have been promised that we'll be with them, that we'll take care of them, and all that's going on there. I don't have all the answers. In fact, not very many. But we do see brokenness all over the world. And we would see that judgment, almost a a need for vengeance that will come one day upon those who are evil. But notice the one who comes. It tells us that with justice, he judges and makes war. Notice that word, and it's used all through the book of Revelation, the word white. There's the great white throne, something of his coming on a white horse. It begins all the way back through the book, and it has to do, I believe, with something of purity. And yes, something has to do with vindication for all those who have suffered. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Notice that great throng of people. Revelation 7 speaks of these white robes in verse 9 there. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. Well, there again, Revelation 20 speaks of that great white throne judgment moment. There's something here about judgment. The color conveys something of that holiness and purity, but also how God will vindicate truth. Justice will come. There is something here of final judgment, that God will vindicate all things when the rider on the white horse comes. But notice something about this rider on the white horse that seems to me to be so very important, and that is he is called faithful and true. All the judges that you probably have read about, the great and most important qualification for a judge is to be faithful and true. Can't be bribed, can't be crooked, can't be deceitful, can't be with prejudice in that sense. Faithful and true. The greatest requirement for a judge is that he would be faithful and true. We read, even from the Apostle Paul, that there will be that great day when God will judge the secrets of men by my gospel, Paul says. There will be that great moment that he comes and all things will be judged by his gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is that sense that, that he will judge the, the, those living and those who have died. All will be judged by the one who is faithful and true. The whole earth will be before this great moment of judgment. But notice also in this passage, his eyes. Is there anything that's so amazing when it speaks of these eyes as being as a flame of fire? Now, to think of 
eyes is the flame of fire. Almost, I hope you don't think this must be literal in that sense that there's flames of fire shooting out from his eyes. But certainly what we have here is something very much that he sees all things. He knows all things. He will judge all things. Yes, a flame of fire. The book actually opens with that description of the Lord Jesus Christ in his beauty and that his eyes were as a flame of fire. He knows and judges the hearts of the ungodly who claim to be members of his people, but are not. They're apostate or fakes. Fakes. They have an outward appearance of godliness, but they really don't have the power of it in, inside of who they are. He will judge all. For the book of Daniel, it speaks his eyes like flaming torches. Doesn't this move us to urgency, to action, to realize there's going to be a day of judgment? There's a certainty to this. It's real for all of us and all peoples everywhere. The rider on the white horse. Turn with me back to Isaiah 63, an amazing passage of Scripture that's fulfilled with the coming of the rider on the white horse. We read in Isaiah 63, Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have tread, trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. Do you see the certainty of this? There's going to be a day in which God will judge all the secrets of men's hearts. There will be a day when all the wrongs will be put right. There will be a day when the rider on the white horse will come in power and glory. There's a certainty to this. That should give us all, as God's people, an urgency. Second, notice with me that the rider on the white horse conquers with his with the words out of his mouth. And note this well, and I believe it's important for our time. Think of this one that's spoken of in John's Gospel. Probably most of us all could probably say this together, maybe some in the King James or, or in the authorized ESV or, or uh, the new authorized or, or maybe even the few that might have the NIV or whatever may be happening here. I don't know your authorized version. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And how did it come to be? He spoke, and it came to be. Now, I don't even comprehend how that could be when I think of galaxies that are billions of light years across. 
and he made all those things. I don't think even with the good, brilliant minds that may be here, there's anyone who can comprehend that. He conquers with the power of the word that comes from his mouth. So when we read here that Jesus comes and he will conquer ultimately all the nations, but he is conquering now. That first element is prayer. Ah, we begin the first thing we pray. Turn with me back a few pages. When I read this yesterday morning, I thought of the Revelation chapter 6, and there these words struck me afresh. Isaiah, or excuse me, Revelation 6, verse 9, there, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe. They were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. There's something here when the judge comes. He'll come at that time when all the suffering has taken place, all the efforts have taken place to reach all the people of God. Yes, he has a plan, a purpose. Part of our years in Colombia and, and afterwards uh, in all of the different parts of Latin America has been that closeness and being with those that were so much a part of working together. There was a man in Bogota, Colombia, missionary to the Carajones, uh, Chester A. Bitterman. We knew him as part of our church in Bogota as Chepi. We left Colombia in 1980 and, and pastoring in Mesa, Arizona, and we got word that early in the morning, M19 came into the guest house of Wycliffe there, and they were looking for a particular man with about five or six families there, all asleep. And they brought them all down. They tied them up, and they did threats and everything. And, but the one man that spoke Spanish, because he'd been part of our church, one man that spoke Spanish well was Jeppe. And so he was the one they took. He left behind uh, his daughters and his wife. And yes, uh, it was very powerful to us because he was one that uh, actually we gave our furniture to and other things that uh, took us to the airport when we left. Um, there were a lot of closeness, the two of us together. And uh, he had 48 days to give the testimony of Jesus because the one thing he had with him was his Bible. And with those terrorists, he gave the gospel to them 48 days. At the end of that time, they put a bullet in his heart and left him in an abandoned bus in downtown Bogota. There will come a day when the rider on the white horse will come and set all things right. There'll come a day of vengeance. There'll come a day when that rider on the white horse will come. And yet, in the meantime, the word of God 
we believe brought conversion to some through that testimony of those 48 days and Cheppy's death. God brings his gospel to his people through suffering, through difficulties, through those things that seem to us to be very weak and without almost why. Why is it that this has taken place? Why? How do you overcome M19? How do you overcome the Taliban? How do you overcome these terrorist groups? We lived in Colombia in the years when the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, what was called the FARC, had a fifth of Colombia, and all the threats and went on. How do you overcome them? Do you do it by giving them money, land? Do you do it by bombing them to smithereens? Do you do it by somehow or another, some, some government procedure, some new law, something? We go to Afghanistan on our TV sets, and we watch 20 years, in a sense, almost go down the drain. Only the word that comes out of the mouth of the one who is on that white horse can really change people, can change hearts. And the reality is we have that which is more powerful than all the bombs and guns and technology and tanks and everything else. It actually can overcome nations. We have a difficulty believing that. Hmm. We have a book that we have published in Spanish, written by Miguel Nunez, there in the Dominican Republic. It's called El Poder de la Palabra para Transformar una Nación. The power of the word to transform a nation. That same power that transforms our lives is the only real power that can transform a nation, whether it's this land that we live in or one living under Marxism in Cuba. It's that word, that word from his mouth that changes things. Prayers that are answered, yes, that preaching of that word also is God's ordained means. Yes, prayer and preaching. Read with from Revelation chapter 12, these words, Revelation 12, verse 11, there, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. What will overcome the devil's work? The testimony of Christ, the word that comes from his mouth, the word of God, the preaching of that word. That's what is powerful. Verse 15 of our text of Revelation 19, it says there's a sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. Now I hope there's no one again that thinks there's some kind of a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. It would be like, that's not it. It's saying something much deeper than that. It's that word 
that comes from his mouth. It's powerful. That word of God. Yes, ultimately it will be the final judgment over all who are enemies. But that word also is conquering now. It's the means that God has. As you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I believe beginning about verse 20, we won't take the time to read through it, but it, that which seems to be foolishness to some, that which is a stumbling block to some, it becomes the power and wisdom of God, the preaching of Christ. Oh, that God would give us that understanding how that is the means of conquering the evil one. Yes, it is that which is much more powerful than democracy or even all the technology and weaponry of our day. It is more powerful than all of those things. And we must see the power of that word and really rejoice in it. So as we see how God uses the means of prayer and preaching, but I want us to also just grab hold of from this passage of Scripture that there is a power of God. When you come to the end of this passage, verse 16, notice what it says there. It has this amazing statement. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That has to do with power. Power of God. He is that king of kings. What was the place there on the thigh was where they carried their sword or it was also the thigh was where they placed their hand to, to make an oath or a covenant and to, yes, enter into that. And this one has, yes, this power title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want us to grab hold of that. There's a sense in which it's applied to God. He is the King, the Lord. And Jesus Christ in his deity is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 17, I think it's verse 14. There's a power in this one that speaks. He came in one sense, if you grasp something, the horror of the cross, can you think of a more helpless place than where he was upon a cross with people spitting upon him and mocking him? And yet he will come as King of kings and Lord of lords. Weakness as a man, and yet at the same time, very God of very God, he will come in power on, the great, on that great moment of judgment. I want us to read, just so that you'll have a feel for this afresh, from 2 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul is very much uh, with this, and it's, it's some powerful words, almost like I would say in our, much of our American culture today, it's almost something Christians are ashamed of. 
you read in 2 Thessalonians these powerful words and notice beginning with verse 5 all this Paul says is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering God is just he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well this will happen when when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Do you grasp a little bit of the amazing thing that's going to take place with certainty? He's coming again in power and glory. The nations, oh, they've had a false authority put over them. We have in the book of Revelation the, the dragon that has some seven crowns upon him and the, the beast that has ten crowns upon him, but they're all with false authority. There's one who will come, the rider on the white horse, and he will have many crowns. He will have the true crown as king of kings and Lord of lords. There will be a people, yes, that belong to him, conquered from all the nations and tribes and languages and peoples of the earth. It tells us in, in the Psalms that they will be made willing in the day of his power. The day of his power. And he's exercising that power to draw people to Christ right now. He's bringing people to saying, Hallelujahs unto the Lord God Almighty. How is that power exercised? I think it's good for us to look with our own eyes at John 1.13. Just one more time. You all know the verse probably by heart, but it's one that it's good for us to see and sometimes put in a little more modern language than what some of us learned it originally. John 1.13, knowing something of his power, it says that those who, are, those who come willingly to Christ, they are children born not of the natural descent, nor of human decision, or a human, of a husband's will, but born of God. Only God can make a Christian. Parents can't make children their Christians. You can't make yourself. Maybe that sounds uh, you know, what? I can decide when I'm going to believe in Christ. No. Only God reveals himself to you. He opens your eyes. He gives you a new heart to believe. It's amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. 
Isn't it the most amazing thing? Isn't this the most powerful thing you can imagine? Dead in sins and trespasses, and you believe in Christ. Amazing grace. Yes. So I ask the question as we come to this element of seeing how prayer and preaching and the power of God, does not this move us also to be urgent with the gospel going to others? We some time ago remodeled the building at Cornerstone and and, uh, one of the things we did, we put a big clock up in our library that has a great emphasis on missions uh, as a picture of David Livingston and William Carey and uh, there in the library and and we put a clock up on the wall and my wife Nancy found that verse there in I believe it's Revelation 14. It has these words uh, uh, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest is ripe. When? It's now. I spoke earlier that what I think sometimes, especially as pastors, we have a tendency we can talk about, we brainstorm, and all the great principles. But where is the action? Now is the time to reap. I'm thankful. What rejoicing to hear your church's outreaches to different parts, to nations, to India, to Balboa Park, to all these different places. Action! Your family, are they ready for the coming of the one who will ride on the white horse? Are they ready now for his coming? That's a reality to be ready. Or are you doing nothing? We think of our our great heritage of William Carey. Um, Thankful for a seminary in Cordoba, Argentina called El Seminario de William Carey, William Carey. He had this heart for taking the gospel to the world that was lost. And some of you maybe have read something about his life. And after they had had meetings and discussions and discussions and sermons, and they had brainstormed. And at the end, they were ready to close. And finally he stood as the story is told, and he said, are we going to do nothing again this year? And there was some action that took place. Will we do nothing again? We're not much. But with God, he can do amazing things through not much. One last point from this passage. A little more direct, I guess. The rider on the white horse calls us with urgency to take our sickle and reap. I do have that verse written down here. Revelation 14, 15. Look it up. It's something I think that speaks to us about the now of reaping. The writer, who is he? I think we have a moment more to to look just real quickly at John chapter 1, verse 15 and verse 30. I won't turn there, but you can turn there. And probably your translation has it, the one as John the Baptist speaks, he says, the one coming after me, that would be who? But That would be 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and was born six months after John the Baptist. The one coming after me, the historic Christ who was born here in this Fiera Firma, this one who was really born here from the Virgin Mary, this one came six months after me. And then almost all the translations take the, the Greek word, and I don't have my Greek Testament with me in these days, uh, uh, but it's the word, as I remember, improsthen. Maybe there's some of you who can look at that right now, but I want you to know that all through the New Testament, that is a word that has to do with time, not rank. And almost all the translations, they think they need to put it that he is superior to me or has become more important than I am. Don't know what you have, but that's the sense of almost all of them. But really, it's the one who's come after me was before me. In time, he was the one who was all through the Old Testament at all those great appearances of the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. He is identified as Yahweh, as God himself. But at the same time, he was sent by the Lord. Now, it's the strangest thing. How could this be? It's as we have the light of the New Testament, we know of one who was sent by the Father. And yet he was God. The next phrase in John 1.15, out of the mouth of John the Baptist, John 1.13 also, it's repeated twice. The next phrase says, the one coming after me was before me because he was my first. He was the protos. He was the absolute eternal one. So what we need to grasp is the rider on the white horse is this glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who was, yes, all through the Old Testament, he was coming to his temple as it was prophesied in Malachi. He was going to suddenly attend, come to his temple as the angel of the covenant. This is the one who is the eternal one, the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we come to this and realize he calls us, it's this one who calls us. In our passage of Scripture, it speaks of this fine linen, white and clean. And I believe it calls us to wash ourselves in the blood of Christ. Nothing but the blood can make us clean. Nothing but the blood of Christ can make us clean. And then notice that reality that he is that king of kings. Who is he? You've been going through the catechism and uh, certainly that wonderful question, who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. There was no shut-off valve when he ascended to the Father's right hand. There's no shut-off valve, period. He is forever identified with us right now at the Father's right hand, sympathizing with you, sympathizing with me. He is identified with us as our elder brother, as man, intercedes for us at God's right hand, 
sympathizes with us in all our trials, King of kings and Lord of lords. As God, he's still gentle and lowly in caring for us. He's real. It's all real. So as we come to this wonderful thing of this great day of wrath that's coming, it would be my prayer this morning that it would bring us to an urgency concerning our own families and concerning the nations of the earth. We alone, we alone have the message that transforms. All the money of the world can't change things. In fact, sometimes it can make it worse. We have the message from the mouth of the rider on the white horse. And it changes people and things. Why is there that saying that we know the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? What's that saying about? Why is it important from ancient church history? Because it's speaking of how there is suffering that takes place to fill up, yes, the suffering of Christ in the sense of bringing his people to himself. And it's something we participate in. Urgency to take the gospel. That hymn that we love of William Cooper, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. We have work to do. It's not a time for lollygagging around, even just for brainstorming without action. We have work to do. And then finally, remember together, it's not political power. We sometimes think, oh, if we had, you know, wow, what do we need new? I don't know, California wants to, they want to have a new governor. We had a a new president, we had, uh, if only we had about $10 million, I mean, we could change this whole community, couldn't we? Guys, gals, there's only one thing that's powerful to change people, and we've got it. We've got it. If only we had nonsense, we've got it. So there is something here that is so important. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? Uh, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever, forever, forever. He is everything. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has come and he's coming again as the rider on the white horse. And we thank you that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful and true. We thank you. We have been given the word, the words from his mouth, the gospel from his mouth, faithfully given to us through his apostles. Oh, Lord, we pray that that powerful word will transform and work in our lives. 
I thank you for this church and the leadership here and the burden and the action that they have been taking and want to continue. Oh, Lord, energize us that even we will be surprised with what you do in a wonderful, gracious way in our lives. And, oh, Lord, that you would impact the nations of the earth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.